Now, now, real people, real opinions. Nighttime talk with Niall Boylan. Ireland's classic hits radio. Some jobs are more interesting than others, let's face it. And some jobs have a lot more stories than others. And I can't think of a more fascinating job than that of a judge. And why I'm saying that is because I'm going to let out a little secret that I'm almost ashamed of. But I'm addicted to Judge Judy. I, <laughs> I am addicted to Judge Judy. The bill of clean hands. Put your listening ears on. I think she's great. I think she's fascinating. Anyway, I, 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 watch, I binge watch episodes on that channel. What's the channel that plays all the old Judge Judys? Back from 2009, right forward. I've seen loads of them before, but I watched them again. That's petty things people bring each other to court for. But I'm just addicted to it. Anyway, climbing through the legal ranks to being in charge of a courtroom, what you must see and hear, not to mention the characters you would come across. I mean, the best and the worst of society, I suppose, is what you see. But tonight I'm sure to be chatting to a retired judge and an author, Judge Stephen Platt. Judge Stephen Platt served as a judge in Maryland courts for over 25 years. With 17 years in the circuit court, he recently released his book, Lesson Lived, Lessons Lived and Learned. My life on and off the bench. It is said that he is inescapably intertwined with some of history's most pivotal events. And he has been dubbed the Forrest Gump of politics. And he joins me now. Um, Judge Stephen Platt, hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Thanks I hope for the uh, invitation. You're so welcome. I'm actually intrigued to have you on the air because I've always wanted to talk to a judge. Thankfully, I haven't really appeared before any of them, apart from a divorce, and that was about it. So well, that's fa- probably a good thing, right? <laughs> Absolutely. But many people have appeared before you. So firstly, let's get to the point of how you became a judge. Were you always, as even as a kid, interested in law? Pretty much. Um, I um, concluded after uh, some experiences as a grade student, uh, middle school in high school that I had no uh, aptitude for either science or math, and that um, I had uh, no mechanical skills, that narrows the options of what you can do with your life. I was told that the same people who told me about my, who convinced me of those limitations, that I had some uh, talent uh, as a speaker and a writer, and uh, so that focused me on what I was interested in anyway, which is law, politics, and economics and the intersection. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like here in Ireland, you have to go through the kind of standard procedure of being a solicitor, I assume, a barrister, and then being, you know, put forward for the bar. I assume it's similar in the United States, is it? Well, we don't have the distinction between solicitors and barristers. So, you do have to be a lawyer uh, to uh, to be a judge on most courts, although there are some rural courts uh, in the country in certain states where you don't have to be a lawyer. Okay. Uh, one of the first the first court that I was on was was called the Orphans Court, which ironically was taken from uh, the name in England uh, that that uh, the British gave it. It had nothing to do with orphans. It was a probate court, but uh, that court uh, had lawyers, but it didn't require lawyers. There were there were three of us. Usually, there was at least one lawyer, and he or she probably did most of the work. Certainly, when I was there, that's what happened. And when you were in in your years, your twenty five years that you and seventeen years in the circuit court, would it be mainly being criminal law, 
uh, civil law, family law, or are we, have you done them all at this stage? All of them. Uh, and the, uh, the different circuit court is the court of what's referred to as general jurisdiction. And in a nutshell, that is the only trial court that includes juries. Mm-hmm. The lower court is strictly judges um, and has less uh, criminal, also has a mixed jurisdiction, but it's lesser misdemeanor crimes. Yeah, we, and, we uh, have the same here. Cases. We yeah, we have the district courts so, so would be the same. Very, yeah, I've been to I've been there and it is similar that yeah. way. So we we have over here the district court, the circuit court, the high court, and the supreme court. Uh, district court, of course, right. has no jury. Circuit court, you can take a case, even if it's a civil case, up to thirty thousand euro. And after that, then you got to go to the high court. But and right. and a similar situation, if you want to appeal, you have to go to a higher court, obviously, all the time. Um, where you, the law right. differs in America, and you can explain this to us maybe a bit better. In Ireland, when you're um, arrested for a crime, a file is sent to the, what they call the DPP, which is the Director of Public Prosecutions, and they decide whether there's enough evidence to take a case. And if they do decide that, well, then you're given a court date to go and go before a jury or your peers. Whereas in America, I think it's slightly different. You go before a grand jury before, and they are they are the ones, or the judge decides if it's a case to be taken. Is that the way it works? Grand juries decide whether they, to to charge an individual with a felony. Uh, but a citizen in some states, in Maryland, one of them, can literally uh, apply for charges against another uh, human being and, uh, and, and, and get those charges, but they would have to be a misdemeanor only. Mm-hmm. If it's anything more than that, then the police become involved uh, and they screen what we call screen it. And the grand jury, if there's a felony charge to be made, the prosecutor makes that call and the grand jury is convened. Uh, there's almost always a grand jury in, in session, and some are convened specially uh, for certain cases. I mean, you've seen every type of character, and on one or two of the occasions that, that I was uh, in family law, I had to go to the lower court or the district court, and you'd be there for, I don't know, hours on end waiting for your case to be called or whatever it is. And the same judge in that district court would be dealing with a guy who stole a car somebody else who, I don't know, pulled a knife on somebody uh, or whatever, and then he comes to you and you're looking for, you know, maintenance for a separation or something like that, for a divorce. So the same judge is dealing with all of these things. It must be very difficult to be impartial when you've just dealt with the lowest of society and then you've got two reasonable people coming in who are just having a problem or a dispute over a divorce. So it it must be very difficult to deal with people and, and know that you've made the right decision. You don't know, and and I tell uh, people that I'm a mentor or seek my advice on whether or not that they would ever want to be uh, a judge, is that if you are uh, uh, ag- if you are the type that agonizes over decisions, or that you don't feel comfortable making decisions based on limited information, in other words, you'd want more information, then you probably shouldn't take this job or work in another line because you're going to have to make decisions on based, very limited information in some instances. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, if you're not comfortable doing that, you probably can't do a very good job. Uh, you do the best you can, and you have to be satisfied that you did do that. Now, there are appellate courts, so if, you, uh, if, if somebody doesn't like your decision, there is somewhere they can get what I call a, a second opinion. I've had people, uh, parties in front of me that will say something like, I would like to announce that I'm going to appeal. And I'm like, you don't have to announce it. You can do it anyway. Yeah. But if you want to, that's fine. And um, 
uh, and uh, uh, the uh, appellate courts will not hesitate to give you a uh, second opinion. Mm-hmm. And have you in your career, I'm sure you must have at some point in your career, gone home, sitting there over your dinner thinking, I shouldn't have gave that guy five years. I should have gave him 10. Or I shouldn't have gave him five. I should have gave him a suspended sentence. I mean, do you agonize a little bit over some of the decisions that you've made? No. And I mean, I'm being candid with you. No. Okay. And uh, now, if I, there are ways a judge can change what he or she has done if they feel that way. And, and, and if I did feel that way, then I wouldn't hesitate to do it. I have reconsidered criminal sentences. One of the chapters in the book is, uh, is about that. Uh, and uh, I sentenced uh, three individuals to uh, 100 years, every, mi- every minute I could give them. Uh, and 27 years later, I reconsidered on two of them uh, and because I became convinced that they had changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I think you, you know, agonize is not what I do, but I do think about what I do. And I don't stop thinking about it, particularly if there's a reason to keep to think about it again. And I, I, I'm looking, you know, I was going through the book and some of the different stories that are in the book. Each chapter is a, is a kind of different story, right from where you began to where you become a judge. And I know you're involved in politics as well. But it also talks about, and I've been very interested in chapter 17, which is the little girl with 25 personalities. Maybe tell us a little bit more about that, because it sounds intriguing. Yeah, if you said to me, and I'll I'll, uh, I'll say you did, uh, that uh, what's the most interesting case that I ever had, That's that would be my answer. That's why the, it's a chapter in the book. When I began hearing that case, uh, I did not, uh, if you would have said, do you believe there is such a thing as multiple personality syndrome? I would have said, I'm not sure, but uh, I tend not to, to think there isn't. When I was done with that, there was no question in my mind that that little girl uh, who was, in a nutshell, developed uh, 25 personalities, uh, some of whom uh, manifested themselves right in the the office of the psychologist. Uh, I asked the psychologist during that uh, six-week trial, uh, is there any possibility that she could ever lead a normal life? His answer was no. Uh, Maryland law at the time was, uh, uh, in a nutshell, uh, very uh, strong in in its public policy of trying at all costs to unite a child with the parents. Mm-hmm. I thought it would be disastrous to do that. As you can, as, if you read the chapter in the book, I wasn't going to do it. Uh, which goes, by the way, to the debate around that's going on not just in the United States and I'm, I'm sure in Ireland, but else, but all over the world is uh, should judges pay any attention to the effect uh, of uh, what they do on 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 the litigants? And my answer is a resounding yes. Uh, it's not just a law; it's it's it affects human beings, and your decisions are uh, can very seriously impact both positively and negatively. Uh, the people that are mm-hmm. litigating in front of you. Uh, but in that case, uh, I've terminated the parents' rights, both of them, for different reasons. Uh, and uh, was very, very happy that I could. Yeah. Uh, that was a 76-page opinion uh, that, uh, uh, and I was 
trying to make sure that they, if there was an appeal, that it didn't get changed. And it turned out that despite their vehemently denying everything that was said about them, both parents, they didn't appeal, which right. answers a basic question. Uh, if you feel that strongly and you don't appeal, maybe you don't feel that strongly. I get you. I get you. And, and over chapter 23 also talks about over your years that you've dealt with many cases of police brutality. Um, and those cases are probably, are they difficult? I, I mean, we often wonder, you know, when members of Angarda Shikana, as we call them, the police go to court um, or somebody takes a case against them or whatever it is that maybe they get different treatment. I, I, I don't, wouldn't, wouldn't like to think they do, but, you know, are they different cases to hear? They are difficult, difficult cases to hear because in some instances you, you almost find yourself wondering how could uh, this happen? Uh, and, and the answer is the case that, that one of the cases, now that I did that as a mediator. Mm-hmm. I didn't do that as a judge. Oh, okay. I did try many cases with police as, as a judge, and which gave me the experience and the perspective uh, and the context to, to be able to mediate. But uh, uh, in the case that I mediated, which is the chapter is entitled the $20 million man, the settlement was for $20 million. It came uh, after George Floyd, uh, which is in, was the, a very high profile case in of which course. the uh, yeah. Floyd was killed. I, I'm sure you heard about it in Ireland and around the world. Well, this was arguably worse than, than that because this individual, it was undisputed that he handcuffed him, put him in a police car, uh, and, and then fired six shots into his back. Wow. Now, the question was, what would a jury, when you're mediating, what you're doing is you're trying to get an agreement. You're trying to settle the case. Uh, and the county was, uh, and the money that, that it would take to do that uh, was at issue. Uh, the um, But it was... Uh, there was some concern about uh, uh, there used to be more of a what we call it the blue wall, but here the only question was uh, is the, is that enough? Uh, and uh, the measure of that is it's almost become an industry around the country. Uh, the policy aspect of that is which the court didn't have anything to do with. In other words, I'm doing a court case. I'm litigating. Yeah between specific parts about specific facts. I'm not trying to decide what's the problem. Uh, and then and they're not, in my opinion, some, in some instances, not doing a very good job of, of dealing with the problem, but that's not for me to do. I made that decision when I decided to be a lawyer and be a judge and not be a legislator or a politician. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the, the, uh, the settlement was, uh, uh, based on the fact that, that this was outrageous and who knows what a jury will do when faced with outrageous facts. I was asked by the press, normally it's, it's confidential. This was an agreed, they were, both sides said, no, we want it to be public. Um, some of the, some of it was political. Some of it was because they wanted to get the public on to understand what we're doing. Yeah. The media covered it heavily. And in a nutshell, uh, the, uh, the, I was asked by the press at the press conference that I agreed to attend after everybody signed everything and said that they wouldn't change their mind about that. And they, I said, they said, well, how could you justify that? And I said, 
the facts were uniformly bad. There was nothing good about what happened. And there was no way to argue anything other than this is outrageous. Yeah, there was no, def- no absolutely no defense whatsoever for what he did. Yeah. All right. And if you're a lawyer, uh, you know, and if you're a judge and you practice law and you've litigated, it helps to have that experience. There's some people, there's some uh, people, some cases where there's not a whole lot you can say and have any credibility when you say it. One of the chapters in there is I represented a professional hitman when I was a lawyer, mm. when I was practicing law. Wow. And so I, I've been in the situation where I was representing somebody who there wasn't a whole lot of good that I could say about him. <laughs> um, and uh, that helps to understand that. Yeah. And perhaps it produces a, a, a little bit more tolerance for the legal profession than some other people have. You know, when you represent somebody like that, many times somebody will say, how could you represent somebody like that? Yeah, I've often wondered that, by the way. You know, uh, there, there, there is a thing in law, I don't know if it's the same in America, that a barrister or lawyer here in Ireland is not supposed to represent somebody who admits their guilt. So in other words, if, if their client, you know, admits to them, I did it, just get me off with it, well, they're not supposed to represent them. Now, I'm pretty sure that most barristers know whether their own clients are guilty. That's or not the case here. Yeah. Yeah, that's not the case here. Uh, the, uh, and, and, and anywhere in this country. In fact, the, the, the reverse is true. The, 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 the conventional uh, theory of wisdom is that everybody deserves a, lawyer, a, a criminal that is charged with uh, something that could deprive them of his liberty, his or her liberty, that uh, they, they have a right to have an attorney and everybody deserves the best defense possible. So mm-hmm. that's almost the 108 degrees from what you're talking about. And, and uh, when I represented when I represented him, yeah. we nicknamed him in my office uh, Vice President in Charge of Personnel. Nice. <laughs> right. um, okay. Uh, and and his job was to be the enforcer for a drug ring. Okay, that, and I know you cover uh, that. That you cover that in the book in Chapter Eight. You talk about the hitman or the Vice President of right. in Charge of Personnel. Get, getting back to litigation, by the way, because you mentioned that high-profile case you talked about where the guy was shot, or the police officer shot the guy. What was the outcome in the end? How much did he get? $20 million as a settlement. Yeah. That's a lot of money. And meaning the, meaning it, the government agreed that the county who hired the police officer who did that, um, and in that case, the facts were, again, they didn't require, they, they gave up their confidentiality, which is why I'm able to talk about it. Normally, I wouldn't be able to talk about it. But in this case, there was, a, there was an agreement to, uh, that it would, the confidentiality that normally accompanies these settlements would not imply. Uh, the, they got $20 million, and, uh, the, uh, and, and the, uh, uh, they did it because... Uh, I think probably there was a political aspect to it. Uh, Black Lives Matter uh, was 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 involved, and that was that phrase was used at the press conference to explain where the money was coming from, because there was an element of the population that thought that's my tax money you're paying. Yep. Uh, and uh, so you had that, and then you had the. Uh, the family, who of course thought there was no no amount of money that could compensate for the loss of, of, of their uh, uh, brother, uh, son, wife, uh, husband, mm-hmm. and uh, so the twenty million dollars was was a number that uh, was not even though you would think everybody would be pretty satisfied, they weren't. 
what happened was the came of the evidence in the case had, had, was that uh, this gentleman, this gentleman, this person that did this, the a police officer, should never have been hired. And after he was hired, he did he had a history of brutality and so forth. That that would have caused some people to be even more outraged. Besides what he did to begin with, now you've got something where there's no. It'd be very hard to convince uh, a jury of, of neutral people or even people that have been open mind or both that they shouldn't have known and gotten him off the street. I even said mm-hmm. to as I was mediating the case to one of the to the attorneys, why is he why was he still on the street? And I, I'm and curious. Was, sorry, sorry for interrupting you, but I'm curious. <laughs> I, I'm going back to the figure. Yeah. Sorry, give me the answer as to why he was still on the street because I don't want to interrupt that story. Why was he still on the street? The answer was, we, whoever, the, you know, the police department knew of his history because he he compiled that history while he was a police officer. Mm-hmm. But the government didn't. The the, the civilian, the, the county executive, and others, uh, and the county attorneys, the the attorneys didn't know. So the police, the leadership of the police department, was arguably responsible. And as a matter of fact, as a result of that case and that settlement, the chief of police was summarily fired. Wow. And uh, now that wasn't part of the case. That wasn't part of the settlement. The political ramifications of that settlement were that somebody had, you know, we were looking for somebody to blame. I know that comes as a shock to you uh, that politicians look for people to blame. Yeah. Yeah. but uh, but that's what happened, and the first person that got blamed was the chief. And then, of course, I'm sure he was trying to figure out who it is below him that knew about this and didn't say anything. Somebody mentions not that. only was this person hired right, with a history that that should have kept mm-hmm. him from being hired, he then ran up incidents that that were part of the record of this case. And as in the in litigation, they you know you have those records. You have to produce them if the other side uh, asks for them. And the other side, in this case, the lawyer for the family of the deceased uh, who was shot six times in the back while he was sitting in a car, uh, they had very, very good lawyers. Um, I mean, they had experienced police uh, uh, lawyers that that knew how to do these cases, and, and the county knew that they could and would try the case and so that gave it even more value. And I often wonder how you come up with those kind of figures. I'll get back to that in a second, but it's on that note in relation to police brutality or police abusing their authority or their power. Somebody just texts in and says, I have a serious question for your judge. I understand there is a system that is in place, but it goes wrong. Why do the police have qualified immunity for drawing their weapon, taser, gun, or killing innocent people? So I, I suppose that you probably answered that pretty much in, in everything you've said there a few minutes ago, why they have qualified immunity sometimes in some... Uh, well, I they, have qualified immunity because they have qualified immunity because they uh, historically they've had it. I'm not defending it, uh, but they have qualified immunity because there's not enough votes in either the state legislature or the Congress of the United States to take it away. Mm. And we live in a democracy. We live in a democracy. I, I did some work as a consultant in uh, uh, Dubai, uh, and uh, I was watching. There was a, we were consulting on their court system, and I asked the, the chief judge of the Dubai court, uh, 
how he got all this technology because it was looked like it was arguably more modern than ours, which is saying something. He looked at me and he went, there are advantages to not living in a democracy. Oh, I know. Well, um, it's meant to be a democracy here too, by the way, Stephen. <laughs> but sometimes we, of I'm doubtful of that. that we're living in, yeah, in the world that we're living in, we're, we're having a debate about whether democracy is better than, auto- than autocracy. And the question that everybody needs to ask is, uh, as a, my, one of my mentors said that I mentioned in the book frequently, uh, when the Holocaust took place, when, when all of these uh, incidents took place, war crimes, crimes against humanity, is, he, he rhetorically asked the question, where were the judges and where were the lawyers? Yep. Yep. And, and those questions have to be asked, uh, and they have to be brought to the attention of the people who are considering having something other than a democracy. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was class lawsuits, um, because I'm, I'm assuming at some point in your career you, you've presided over class lawsuits. We don't have them in Ireland, by the way. You, no. can't, you can't take class lawsuit in this country. Every case has to be taken separately. But that's, that's a big decision. Because you're not just giving, you know, two million to one person. You know, that two million will go to every right. single person, you know, who has taken a case. So it's a class lawsuit. They're difficult cases because you can put a company out of business or large companies out of business. Right. Right. I think what, what you do have something in, and I think you have it in Ireland. I know you have it in uh, 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 Britain, and that is, which we don't have, uh, which is except in certain cases is if you file a lawsuit and you lose, you, and I may be oversimplifying in your, in, in our, do you have to pay the other side's attorney's fees? It de- it, it, not always. It depends. Sometimes the well, judge, sometimes the judge will, yeah, but sometimes the general, courses. The general rule is no. And likewise, if you defend, if you, if you're sued and there's no merit to your defense, the general rule is everybody pays their own attorney's fees. In fact, it's referred to as the American rule. Now, the only exception to that in this country is what we refer to as civil rights laws. If you if you go into federal court or state court and allege a violation of someone's civil rights, uh, discrimination, uh, that kind of thing, then you can get attorney's fees, but you never may not get everything you're claiming, you, but you can at least ask and mm-hmm. you have the chance of getting it. Um, that's a, the general rule is no, there are those who believe I'm one of them who think it would probably be better if you had a rule where it says, if you, you know, um, we have a rule that says if it's totally frivolous, but most judges are very reluctant to say, even though they may say they have one side one, that the defense was totally frivolous or, or the case was totally frivolous. We're just generally reluctant to do that because, uh, there may be some part of it that you don't even know about. Yeah. Um, but, but, but it's difficult because you can't, you, you know, people come into court and they think, in fact, I have written articles on this that don't, you know, we ought, we ought to give access to justice. We ought to give access to the courts, but we ought not to convince, tell people that, Hey, the solution to all of your problems is go to court. We don't work. Judges are not trained to solve everybody's problems. Yeah. Uh, we're trained to dis- to, to resolve their disputes. That doesn't necessarily solve the problem that caused the dispute. No, obviously not. And that's certainly true in the family law area, where you know you fifty percent of our marriages result in a divorce. And the family law 
I mean, because I've been through it. Uh, here in Ireland, by the way, family law is a mess. To get a divorce in Ireland, uh, it's probably mind-blowing to Americans, but to get a divorce in Ireland can take up to six years. And in that six years, you may visit court maybe 20 times. Um, you have to go to all sorts of different mediation beforehand, and then you have to go and see a registrar, and appear before a registrar, then you have to go before a judge, and that could take another two days, and then you might come back. And because of the waiting list, it could be a year before you get another day back in court to finish off the case, and it's just a mess. Anyway, I, it could yeah, be... The trend, the trend in this country, well, it was a mess. The trend in this country is to make it simpler, easier, shorter, and less expensive. We're not always succeeding, but the direction, the policy direction is, uh, and not without some controversy, but the ge- the general direction of public policy is what I just said, uh, and uh, and they're eliminating barriers. So now you can get a divorce, you don't have any children, and and you can basically do it yourself. Uh, and you have one court appearance, and may not even do it on. You may not even need a court appearance in certain mm. states. So we're trying to make it easier, cheaper, and shorter. And I suppose the rule of thumb Again, as a, as a judge, the rule, because it, it, yeah. any any religion that that thinks that thinks that's a bad idea, but you know they're they're not prevailing on the on that issue. They're prevailing on other issues. Of course, I imagine the rule of thumb when it comes to divorce or separation, judicial separation, if, I don't know if you have judicial separation in America, but the rule of thumb would be that the money follows the children. Is, is that generally the rule of thumb? Uh, we try not to, okay, um, and uh, uh, because that's not the right measure. And uh, uh, the, But children... Uh, uh, are, are usually the issue if there are if there are minor children. I had a colleague who uh, was very uh, uh, he thought that it was a terrible system to have judges deciding uh, family law issues and custody cases because we're not trained for that. Uh, we now get more training than we used to. But he one of the ways he would come out and try to get people to think about it and settle would be he would walk out and he would look at the parties and say. Do you love your children? And of course, most people would say, of course, you know, that's why we're here. And he would look at them and go, I don't. <laughs> I don't even know your children. You really want me to do this? Yeah. Uh, it would cause them to start thinking. Uh, but uh, and uh, uh, but it's a, now we have mediation, but we're not charging for it. Now you can get you can go private, but uh, we're the courts are providing uh Services and we're trying to get people to solve their own problems. Well, that's generally well, that's generally what you're doing. And in in family law, what I noticed in my experience, and obviously I can't talk about my own case, but just in my experience, what I've noticed in family law is the judges don't really make any decisions. They want you to make the decisions, and they'll just agree with them. So they want you to come up with the solutions, and they're just going to be there to make sure right. it's all legal and above board. They don't want to make decisions, right? We don't, and and the reason is because we're not very good at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there is research that shows that if the parties agree, now you got to watch. You know, I've always said if if there's either abuse or neglect of a child, that's easy. Whoever's doing the abusing and neglecting is not getting the custody of the children, and 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 if they're abusive, they're not going to have access until we're satisfied that we've dealt with that problem. Uh, there's a lot of domestic violence in this world, 
uh, and some of it is is uh, very serious and and unaddressed. But usually, when you're you're dealing with human beings that are imperfect, and you know then if if either is abusive or neglect, then the other person is going to get it. Now, sometimes you're deciding not who the best person is, but who's the worst. Yeah, I got you. And where, where, where the options are limited, um, and and we recognize that, and uh, so it's it's the most difficult area of the law to deal with because um, you know everybody wants to demonize the other side or whatever. You know, I don't want him or her to see the children, or they've got a drug problem, and we have mm. all of that's in there. It's, right. it's a microcosm of everything that's wrong with society. And the children are the ones suffering from. Yeah, the victims of that. And then the of question is, okay, this is a really bad situation with some really, uh, you know, difficult people and difficult problems. What are we going to do? And there's not a lot of options. Yeah, as a barrister once said to me, by the way, the one thing that will never happen in a family law court is the truth. So I think that kind of sums it up, really, because yeah. both parties will lie. But look, unfortunately, you know, people t- in the world, you know, you create your own reality, and that, and, yeah. and uh, then get mad when when the judge or whoever doesn't accept your version of reality. Well, look, unfortunately, time has run out uh, and it's been a really interesting conversation. There's so many more questions I'd love to ask you, but the book sounds astonishing and amazing and wonderful and a great read. And I know now you are still not practicing uh, being a judge anymore. You're involved in uh, legal malpractice cases, medical malpractice Actually, cases. Actually, I'm doing both. I come back as, I come back as a judge. Uh, I'm doing two cases in... Uh, in, in court, as a, that, that where the the government has sued uh, almost every oil company in the world for causing climate change in their particular city and oh okay and, and county. So well, not new about not new about that, is there? That I do do and pri- I engage in private mediation and arbitration, and I also come back as a judge because I didn't retire because I didn't like the job. I retired to do other things, and in addition to what I was doing, uh, this mm. enables me to do both. So I've got a nice life. Okay, yeah, well, I'm I'm, I'm 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 not surprised. By the way, they're blaming the 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 lawyers and everybody else on climate change. They're blaming everybody on climate change. They're blaming the farmers over here. Anyway, uh, look, uh, lesson. The name of the book is Lessons Lived and Learned: My Life on and Off the Bench, and it's thirty chapters. And even the names of the chapters, by the way, are intriguing. I have to be honest with you. They want to, they, they make me ask loads of lot more questions, but unfortunately, we don't have the time. But it's been wonderful talking to you, <laughs> uh, Judge Stephen Platt. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me. Now, now, real people, real opinions. Nighttime talk with Niall Boylan. Ireland's classic hits radio.